You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast. In today's episode, we have a special announcement to make that you're definitely not going to want to miss. So stick around. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking some questions from the Tax Smart Insiders Group. And there's some pretty important questions that have been going on in there that you're going to want to know. Uh, the first things first, Brandon has a major announcement to make. I'm out of here. What? I am, <laughs> <laughs> I'm out, man. I am leaving the show. Uh, Ryan, who is on here, a CPA at our firm, senior tax advisor, will be taking my spot. Ryan, you've been posting on LinkedIn every day, what, for a year now? Yeah, it's been about a year and three months, something like That's that. Incredible. A year and two months. Yeah. 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 And Ryan's been on the show a few times. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, it's been, this has been a lot of fun. You know, when, when I started this podcast back in 20, 16, I think in 2016, I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast, and then I realized how incredible podcasting could be because I had, like got all this like lead flow from being a guest on that podcast. So I decided to launch my own, and I recorded a few episodes here and there, but nothing consistent. Then Tom joined the firm in 2017, and Tom was like, "Hey, I want to help you with the podcast." And we were basically just kind of going back and forth like, okay, yeah, cool. You can be a co-host on the podcast. It'll be good for your brand. And the only requirement is that Tom told me the only requirement is that we have to do it every week. We're not allowed to miss. And I was like, <laughs> okay, as long as you can help me, <laughs> hold me accountable to that and show up, uh, give me like an agenda or something. And that's what Tom did, man. Every And I think that was like early 2018. So early 2018 or mid 2018, maybe. Tom kind of took over this this preparation of the podcast on a weekly basis, and we held it. We we recorded an episode every single week for years. I think the first time we missed was what last year for Christmas no, I, or something. I, so we missed the first Christmas, and I remember that Christmas I actually recorded an episode on Christmas that I was going to release, and I decided not to. And then since then, it's been like a tradition that we just haven't recorded or haven't released anything that week of Christmas. So yeah. that's just been an ongoing tradition. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been incredible. Um, and then we missed one like this year or whatever, and then I was like, oh gosh, I I gotta get out of this, man. We're falling apart. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I forgot to put the audio file into the cloud prior to yeah. leaving for a trip, and then I was on the trip. I was like, I thought I had everything, and then I remember like almost like that Home Alone Kevin moment. Yeah, um, I forgot <laughs> to put I forgot to put the audio file onto the cloud, and that's why we were we actually were late on that one. We got it out, but it was late. Tom takes this extremely seriously, and so he was very distraught. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's all good. And and just to kind of put put it into perspective, in 2016, we had 3,256 downloads. In 2022, we had 1.2 million. Right. Oh. So I, I mean, the consistency with the podcasting is so critical. That frankly, I even undervalued it. But hats off to you, Tom. We've had 3.81 million downloads since 2016. It's been a pretty wild ride. Sometimes we get back into the podcast rankings. We were up there for a while, then we got we we like teeter around the 200 
45, 250 mark in all of uh, Apple Podcast rankings for this ep- for this podcast. So it's been it's been a really fun ride. Now, where am I going? I'm actually launching another podcast with Dylan Brown, another accountant, another tax CPA at the firm, and we are focusing on interviewing and exploring the larger portfolios that people are running. So we we are bringing on guests. We call them large operators, but basically, if you're running a portfolio of fifty million dollars plus. We were exploring how are they doing that? What was their journey to get there? And um, we're trying to get into like the really nitty gritty details of, you know, what are like things that have really worked for you and what are things that cost you a lot of money? Because I think that there's just a lot of value there to extract that it doesn't really seem like many people have really focused on. But every time that we interview people that are like running large deals on this podcast, I'm always like super amped up and excited. So we're going to go and create an entire new content channel targeting those those folks. So if you are if you are a large operator and you listen to this podcast, uh, we will have tax content and operational and scale content on the other podcast that I'll be launching. Or if you want to grow your portfolio to the moon, <laughs> $50 million plus, that'll be a really good place to go and get some good information. We're, we're going to keep it really hard hitting. We're not bringing on any gurus. There's no Instagram, you know, marketing great people and stuff like that. It's all people that are kind of even under the radar a little bit that we're getting onto these episodes and, and interviewing and asking some sometimes tough questions. So really excited about that. But that is called the Major League Real Estate Podcast. So if you go to www and you have to type in www, we gotta we gotta connect with our web host about this. It's really weird. Something's going on with our website, but www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE. MLRE for Major League Real Estate Podcast. There is a little web intake form there that you can put your email in and we'll email you when the show launches. We are targeting end of November. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll drop that into the show notes if you do want to check that out. Before we dive right into questions from TaxSmart investors, I do want to just let you guys know that we do have an excellent guest lineup coming up over the next few weeks. We're going to be talking about STR investing Interested to hear what this gentleman has to say about investing in this environment. We had uh, Jamie from AirDNA on a few months ago now, and you know we know things got a little bit more tighter, a little bit more competitive in the STR space. So uh, interesting to see how that pans out. We're going to have Taylor Brugna, uh, accounting partner here at our firm, coming on and talking about accounting and the importance of accounting, why you need to get your books set up prior to tax season. And also why you need them to understand the financial health of your business so you're not flying blind. All right. So that's super important stuff. And then we have this one. I'm actually really, really excited about this one. We have someone coming on to speak about oil and gas as well as mineral rights and the tax benefits thereof. Now, I don't believe we've had somebody come on the show and talk about that in the past. And if we did, it was very far back. I know a lot of people, we have a lot of people asking questions about that all the time. So that's going to be super exciting. And we also have another gentleman coming on to talk about mindset. So we have some exciting stuff coming up, but enough about that. Uh, I have one last thing to announce, and I promise we want to get to these questions, all right? I've been developing something that... So we have the Tax Smart Investors Group, which is our free Facebook group, and we have our Tax Smart Insiders Group. And what I kind of realized was there's a lot of great information within these communities, but there's no clear path to helping people get from A to B. And I took a look at all of our private clients. I took a look at our most successful members. And what I found was there's a clear path that most of these investors are following to reduce taxes and streamline their accounting system. And I took the path down, created a roadmap, and I'm going to be announcing it within the TaxSmart Insiders community 
in about the next week or so. And then eventually I'll be announcing it to the public. But if you want to hear about it first, you can check it out in the insiders community by starting your free trial. You can go to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash insiders, and uh, you will see you there. But without further ado, we're going to go ahead and dive into some questions. All right. I'm going to kick out the first question to Ryan. All right. So it could be for Ryan. And Melissa in the Facebook Don't mess group, it up. Yeah. Otherwise, we're taking everything back. Yeah, right. yeah, we'll rewind this. Don't mess it up, Ryan. This is your moment to shine here. All right. So we got uh, we got a question from Melissa. All right. Do you have to own a vehicle in the company name in order to claim bonus depreciation? I bought a car a week ago. It's over 6,000 pounds. It will be used primarily for business this year. Because of the short time period, it will probably be over 60% of time this year. Yeah, that I think I've answered that question this week probably three times already. So I think I'm pretty comfortable with this. So hopefully this is like, you know, knock it out of the park. But you don't have to have it in the name of the LLC in order to take the deduction. I'd say it's more uncommon to do that. Usually people are just going to buy it in their own personal name. You can still get the same deduction. I think potentially if you're using like an S Corp or a C Corp, I'm just going to assume like an LLC, then it's really not an impact. But with an S Corp, C Corp, maybe that would have a little bit of a tax difference. But usually if you're going to use it for a rental property in an LLC, just put in your personal name. Just keep it simple. Right, right. That's it's typically the advice. Things do get a little murky, like Ryan said, with the S Corporation. But unless you're going to be using it 100% for business, typically you want to have that in your personal name. So yep. That question is from Melissa, so we're going to keep going here. I am planning to use the short-term rental loophole to offset W-2 taxes. I currently own a short-term rental under a Florida LLC. I'm planning to buy another short-term rental in South Carolina very soon. The question that I have is, can I buy the new South Carolina STR under a different LLC and still group short-term rentals together? I think I lost track of the very first part that you said, but Different LLCs, basically, they're both short-term rentals. Yeah, you can still group them. You can still do the short-term rental strategy. It doesn't matter if they're in two different LLCs, especially as long as the ownership of that is the same. Like if you own 100% of one and the other, then it's it's not going to be a big deal. The entity structure piece is always just an asset protection. I think today I also had a couple people ask me about, hey, does don't I get more tax savings if I have an LLC? No, that's another very common question uh, that comes up. So don't assume tax savings. This is asset protection. But yes, to answer that question from our Facebook member, yes, you can definitely group them, meet the short-term rental strategy, even in different LLCs. All right. Thanks for that answer. Perfect. So I got another one on short-term rentals. I promise we won't be doing all short-term rental questions, but they are very popular. Uh, If I turn my current home into a short-term rental and move into a new primary home, can I use a cost segregation study and bonus depreciation on my current home? I think this one is also right up Ryan's alley. And I promise Brandon and I will take some questions. (laughs) (laughs) You get more of the partnership syndication ones or something. Uh, Yeah. The issue there is going to be Was the property acquired, placed in service, mostly the acquired piece before the September 27th, right? 27th, I think, 2017 uh, date. That's been an issue for a couple of my clients. So if you've owned that property for quite a while now, just be careful of that. Because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that came out, there's that little nuance as far as like acquiring it. Even though you're placing the property in service, maybe now, which you would normally think is eligible 
for 80% bonus depreciation, you have to be careful when you initially acquired that. So be careful if you acquired it before that September 27, 2017 date, it's actually eligible for 0% bonus depreciation. So just be careful. All right. All right. Thank you for that one. We got one that is not short-term rental related. I'll kick this one out to Brandon here. Okay. If I purchased the home in September, immediately found a renter in October, and then issues start cropping up, and I need to fix it while the renter is in the unit, can I use the de minimis safe harbor for expenses that are under $2,500? Yeah, I think you could also look at the betterment adaptation restoration test as well. Like If you're not ameliorating a known defect, then you've got a good argument for a lot of these improvements being able to be deducted as repairs. So I would just be looking into that. We, we we had a boot camp that kind of walked through the 2013 tangible property regulations, which is where all of this, the Dominus Safe Harbor and the yeah. bar tests like kind of live. And we kind of break it down for like, how can the non-tax person understand this? But what th this is a relatively complex question. So that's why I, I thought about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. The boot camp is now going to be broken down into multiple parts and that's going to live in the tax smart insiders community. So if you guys want to check that out, you guys want to do learn about that. You go learn about that in the TaxSmart Insiders community. Yeah. Hey, real quick. If you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know we give all of our tax secrets away for free. From how to use the real estate professional status and short-term rental loophole to save thousands of dollars in taxes and just about everything in between, we don't hold anything back. And that's because our goal is to help as many real estate investors as possible reduce taxes and build tax advantage wealth regardless of budget. And the only way we're able to help more real estate investors is if you can rate, review, and share the podcast. If you could take that one small action, just drop us a review. It'll take like 10 seconds. It will help more real estate investors become tax smart. We appreciate your support. And now back to the show. All right. So we're back with another short-term rental related question. And when calculating the average daily stay, what is included? All guest stays, of course. But what about owner stays for non-maintenance or for maintenance stays? Okay. Well, this is quite simple. When you stay at your property for personal use and it's a non-maintenance day is considered a day of personal use and is not included in the average day calculation, but it will count towards your personal use calculation. And if you recall, if you stay at the property for more than 14 days, it is typically considered a residence, which could cause issues with you using the short-term rental loophole, the strategy, whatever you'd like to call it. As for maintenance stays, if you do stay at the property and work on a substantially full-time basis on repairs and maintenance, then it's not considered a personal use stay. As for friends and family, for non-paid stays, they are considered personal use stays as if you were to stay at the property as well. And uh, you know, this time of year, we start to see questions crop up in the various short-term rental Facebook groups that are out there. And the questions are, hey, does anybody want to swap Airbnbs real quick so that we can get some business use stays in? But there's a regulation that prevents that from occurring. So if Tom and I each have a uh, short-term rental and I call Tom up and I'm like, I, I'll buy your Airbnb, stay days at your Airbnb, you buy days at my Airbnb, and then we'll be able to say that we rented it at the fair market rate for seven days or whatever. It doesn't actually work like that. So if you swap days, then the days are all going to be considered personal use days. They're not going to be considered days that count towards the average period of customer use really important to understand that. And if you're seeing anybody asking about swapping days, especially like I saw one recently, not even related to this, but just swapping days so that they could review each other with five stars, which I also think is against the terms of Airbnb. But if you see people talking about swapping, 
uh, link them up to this podcast and tell them to whatever minute we're on right now, probably somewhere in the 15 range, uh, tell them to check this podcast out because I think that that is a trap that people don't realize exists. Just one other comment in there, even below 14 days, people forget they still have to do this proration between personal percentage and rental percentage. A lot of people just hear, oh, 14 days, if I don't go over that, I'm fine. And I feel like I always have to remind clients whenever we talk about the short-term rental, even if you have one personal use day, that's going to at least impact you negatively, at least a little bit, right? Depending on the number of days that you had for rents on all that stuff. So it's 14 days or 10%. And you kind of mentioned end of the year uh, as we're recording this, that, that especially becomes true if you just placed a rental property into service towards the end of the year. Because if you have a week that you're staying there for like Christmas, and then you have 20 something days, right? That percentage used for personal could be like 20%, right? Then you've blown the 14 or 10%. You got to remember there's two parts. And even if you think you're getting underneath that test, you still have a little bit of a negative implication there. So still got to be careful. Good thoughts. Good thoughts. We've got another question here. This is related to cost segregation studies. When would it not make sense to do a cost segregation study? So maybe we could tag team this one. So I'll give the first instance where it may not make sense to do a cost segregation study. Okay. It's not going to make sense to do a cost segregation study if you have properties that you are flipping. Okay. Properties that you're flipping typically cannot be depreciated. So you wouldn't want to do it on those. Believe it or not, I did get questions on that in the past. The second time when you may not want to do a cost segregation study is if you're going to sell the property the next year. If you're going to flip the property around just the next year by selling it, even if it is considered a rental property and you are able to take depreciation, you're going to have to recapture that depreciation and you may not want to have to deal with depreciation recapture in such a short period of time. You're not going to get that benefit of owning that property for multiple years. It just usually does not make sense in those cases. I would say even like two to three years, right? Like if, if you're if you're trying to liquidate within the next three years, you really have to put this into an Excel formula, right? I mean, you really got to calculate yeah, that depends. present value of if I spend the the capital and then because cost seg studies cost money. So if I spend the money and then I get a tax benefit back and then I reinvest the tax benefit, what is the net present value of these these cash flows, right? That's how you make that determination. But typically speaking, you know, over a two to three year window is kind of where you hit zero on the net present value. So that's where it's like basically break even. So yeah, the longer that you can hold the property that you've cost segged, the better. Because as Tom mentioned, when you sell you have to recapture all that depreciation. You're going to pay a tax on all the depreciation that you claimed through the cost seg that originally saved you money. So what we're really trying to do here is basically say the tax savings came out of the property. I reinvested those tax savings into something else. They earned a return. And that return, the value of that return exceeds the spend to get the cost seg study done. And sometimes, especially on like larger properties, that's going to take a couple of years to to achieve because these cost seg studies are relatively expensive. And I mean, you could see it, it. You can some properties it does get it done in twelve months. So what Tom said is not necessarily wrong, but I just wanted to throw in my two cents there. Yeah, and you said like you know having a sale, we're thinking depreciation recapture. So the only exception there is like if you do a 1031 exchange and that's not truly like a sale then you're doing like an exchange. So a lot of people telling them about cost segs and I mentioned like, well, you know, if you're going to sell within two to three, you probably don't do it. And they're like, what about a 1031 exchange? And I'm always like, yeah, well, that's that's not a true sale as we kind of yeah. talk about the word. So that's obviously that's the point. exception. And yeah. the other things 
that come to my mind was uh, tax rate, right? If you're in a the highest tax rate and you can actually utilize them from you know being non-passive, real estate professional status, the short-term rental strategy, great. You offsetting at a high rate is is very efficient for every dollar of loss that you can get. And then I think the last thing in my mind is what is the purchase? What is the cost, right? If you think about maybe a single family in Detroit, you're buying it for 75 grand. Okay, is the fee uh, and all the additional tax prep costs and stuff worthwhile for the tax savings and all this? Those are a couple other things that I was thinking about. Yeah, that's a great point too. And, and I guess I want to throw one more thing in there. On the topic of depreciation recapture, so right now in the multifamily space, a lot of operators that purchased in 2021 and 2022 purchased on variable rate loans. And they purchased on variable rate loans because the bridge debt essentially enabled them to get a loan on the pro forma, the projected, the stabilized value of the property. So it allowed them to bid properties up and become their, their offers were more competitive. The problem is, is that those loans are all coming due over the next like 12 months or so. It's already started and you've already seen defaults uh, with these sponsors that fell into this. Um, the problem is that if they did the cost segregation study and they got all that bonus depreciation for their LPs, they might have a real economic loss on the property, meaning I bought the property for 20 million, but I'm only able to sell it for 15 million. But if their cost segregation study eroded 6 million of basis, so they bought it for 20, they had 6 million of bonus, their basis is 14 million. So even though they sell it for 15 or even worse, the bank takes it back for 15, they actually have a gain on sale, on liquidation because yep. their basis is 14 mil thanks to the 6 million of bonus depreciation. Uh, and I think that we're going to see some troubled groups like be shocked with this because people typically know that there's the recapture component, but I don't think people realize exactly how it works. If you're using a cost segregation study, you're writing the basis down, the adjusted basis of your asset down. That's what that depreciation is doing to your asset. So when you sell, like if you sell at a real economic loss, meaning I bought the property higher than I'm selling it for, from a tax perspective, you might actually have a taxable gain. I think we're going to see that happen with uh, with a handful of these operators. Painful. Yep. Painful. I got another cost seg question to answer. Can I do a cost segregation study on my primary residence if I have a renter move in and I move out? So basically, it sounds like this person, they're placing the property into service. They're moving out of the property. Now it's going to be a rental property. Can they do a cost segregation study? And the short answer to that question is yes, you can. And if you purchase that property... I believe it's after 2019, if I'm not mistaken, you're able to use bonus depreciation as well. But if you purchase the property before that period of time, there's some issues there. Um, so that is like the short answer to that question. All right. We're going to take one or two more, and then we're going to wrap up for this episode. If you guys do have questions and you do want answers, you can go ahead and join the TaxSmart Facebook community at www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash Facebook you can join the community. There's a ton of great conversations taking place right now, literally as we speak. So, okay. People love short-term rentals. Okay. I bought a property in May. I rehabbed it and got placed into service in June as a short-term rental. Haven't gotten around to filing for an LLC for the property. My understanding is it would be best to wait and put it under an LLC in January, 2024, 
rather than file two returns. One is sole proprietor and one is an LLC. Am I reading that right? What do you have to say? All right. So there's kind of a few things to break down here. It depends on what type of LLC you're going to have or the tax status rather of the LLC. If the LLC is going to be disregarded for tax purposes, then it would be reported on your form 1040 as if the LLC did not exist. All right. So if that's going to be the case, if you're going to put it in a single member LLC, in other words, you're going to be the only owner, you're going to be the only member, then you really don't have an issue. Right. But now if you're going to place into an LLC that's taxed as a partnership, okay, then you could have another tax filing requirement and you might want to hold off until January to do that. So you don't have to file a 2023 tax return. Now, one type of LLC that you should never be putting a rental property in, including most short-term rentals, unless you're providing substantial services, and even then, it may not make sense, is an S-corporation. Do not put your rental property in an LLC tax as an S-corporation, okay? Quite simple. Another consideration would be lending. I feel like a lot of my clients, they get some sort of a vacation home loan and they can't do an LLC. They can't move it out of their personal name uh, for like 12 months or something like that. So just check that. The other thing is the Corporate Transparency Act. So I've actually been talking about this a little bit with clients. If you are going to establish that LLC in 2023, that could be better. That could allow you more time as far as filing that additional kind of form or whatever is going to come out for the Corporate Transparency Act. Uh, CTA, we've had a podcast episode on that in the past. So maybe getting that established now could be a little bit better as far as giving yourself more time to meet that requirement. So that's just one other consideration as far as like a new uh, law that's kind of impacting some decisions here. Great addition. Great addition there. All right. So we're going to take one more question. Then we're going to send everybody off and we'll catch everybody next week. All right. So we got one finally that's not about short-term rentals. All right. So it is, I heard that audit rates are increasing for the real estate professional status. What should I do? Yeah. I don't know if rates are specifically increasing for real estate professional status, but uh, the IRS is staffing up. They are increasing audits. There was actually recently a report that was sent out that showed that that audits are up. Partnership audits are doubled. So the IRS is looking. They're also enabling the usage of AI to help identify returns that are at high risk of basically being wrong or should be audited. So this is a good question, right? I don't know if real estate professionals are necessarily on the chopping block. But regardless, anytime that the IRS has more funding and audit rates are ticking up, it's a good idea to understand if there's anything that you should be doing to protect yourself. Um, and really the best way to protect yourself with real estate professional status, there's there's two things to do. Number one, when you go to your accountant and say, I'm a real estate professional, do they do anything to verify that? Do they ask you for a time log? Do they explain the rules to you? Because if they don't, then most likely they're just taking your word for it. And that might be fine for you, dear listener. Of course, you would never do anything wrong. But you know that accountant probably has a few hundred clients and one of those clients might be saying the same thing and they might not be real estate professionals at all. So that CPA or that tax accountant is exposing you to risk by not verifying or not at least making you substantiate it. So our clients, we make them produce a time log. Uh, we won't take the position otherwise on their tax returns. The other thing that you can do is just review the rules. So again, 750 hours, more time than anywhere else. We have talked about this extensively on this podcast. But this is like really for any strategy, not just real estate professional. When audits are ticking up, review the rules, review your substantiation, and make sure that you know, you're know you good. And if you're not good, take action now to uh, fix it. That's great advice. Great advice. So get your time logs together. Don't be caught without your time log. Okay. 
So before we wrap up today, Brandon, is there anything you want to share with the audience? Any parting words? I know you'll be back on the show eventually, I'm sure, in some <laughs> capacity, you know, for a guest or whatever, but uh, any parting words? Yeah, I guess, Tom, I'm just really bummed that we never got you your real estate professional status wife <sighs> while we were... <laughs> While we were doing this, <laughs> or moved to North Carolina or Florida or wherever. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I got, I got, no, I, I'm not. <laughs> it's been, it, it, How no, many it's, millions of views, <laughs> downloads do we need before this is going to happen? No, I, right, no. Like, I, I, I just want to say to all the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I mean, launching a podcast is uh, kind of a scary thing. You're kind of putting yourself out there, and um, you know, it's it's hard to maintain the consistency, but you know, seeing our downloads tick up is is great positive feedback for us. But also just seeing people in the community messaging us, you know, at conferences coming up to us and high fiving us. Uh, it's just that's what makes it all worth it, guys. It's you listening, coming back and saying thanks so much for producing this content. That's what makes us want to keep doing it for you. So that's all. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for giving us a shot. And thanks for making this podcast such a huge success. And and I'm I'm leaving it in really good hands. Tom and Ryan are going to crush it. We've got a new brain here. So we're going <laughs> to elevate this thing further. We're really excited for it. Um, but that's it. So keep tuning in every week. And uh, with that, you'll get tax smart. Absolutely. And we're going to have a special guest next week. So stay tuned and we'll catch you on the next episode of the tax smart REI podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.